And now as we come to your word, O Lord, we remember that your word is inherent. It's perfect. It's inspired. It is your very word. And it is sufficient for every need that we have. We pray that you would use this time as we study your word to grow us in Christ's likeness, to grow our faith, to grow us as you would have us grow. We know that your word never returns void to you. And so we pray that it would work in us by the power of the Spirit. We pray that the Spirit would give us illumination, that he would allow us and enable us to not only understand the text, but that he would convict us in the areas where we need conviction, that he would instruct us in the areas where we need instruction, that he would even rebuke us if we should need to be rebuked, all in order that we may understand and know your word, that we may obey it, all for the glory of Christ. And we pray, O Lord, for our children. Thank you for them. We know that they are a gift from you. And were it not for your grace, O Lord, we know that they would have no hope. But we pray, O Lord, that you would show your grace to them, that you would cover them with your grace, and that in due time they would come to saving faith. Please, O God, please save our kids, both our children inside the womb and our children outside of the womb. May they be many arrows in your quiver against the enemy, against the darkness of this world. Use this time, O Lord, to plant seeds in their hearts and ours that we may glorify Christ in all that we do and that he would be exalted as we study your word. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 16. We will be continuing in our study of John this week. I believe there's only probably one more sermon uh, that we'll preach before we get to uh, chapter 17. In case you haven't seen, I recently posted a picture on social media of what chapter 17, how rich it is. Uh, for Christmas, Christina got me a two-volume set. It's like a thousand pages of commentary on chapter 17. When I told you guys a few weeks ago that chapter 17 is coming and it's such a rich chapter, I'm not kidding. This two-volume two set is, uh, is going to be incredible uh, for me to crack open. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, chapter 17 of John is, I believe, the single richest chapter in all of Scripture. It has more doctrine than any other chapter alone in all of Scripture. So that is going to be wonderful to get to. But today we are going to be looking at John chapter 16, verses 16 to 22. And as I was studying and, and preparing for this message, for, for this uh, this passage, um, one of the things that really struck me is just how many interpretations there can be for any given, maybe a single verse. Sometimes it's over a whole passage. Now, granted, how many correct interpretations can there be of any given passage? One. 
That's it. There's only one correct interpretation. But I enjoy the process of evaluating the different interpretations. If you know me, you know that I love hunting for treasure. That's why I buy uh, abandoned storage units from time to time. Uh, But the, the treasure that can be found by evaluating the different interpretations of any given passage is very, very rich and rewarding for me. But something hit me this week as I was studying the passage that we'll be looking at today. What hit me is that it really shouldn't be any surprise to us that there are so many conflicting interpretations. It's no surprise that commentary writers and theologians struggle at times to understand a verse or passage. There's much that they completely agree on. But there are also verses in which they diverge, where they go different directions. But we shouldn't be surprised at this since Jesus' own disciples struggled at times to understand him. You know, we've noted on several occasions through our study of John that Jesus told his disciples on how many occasions, just multiple, multiple times throughout the three years that they spent with him, he told them that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem to die. And yet it wasn't until the night before his death that they seemed to register that. That they even came close to understanding and realizing that. So in the passage that we come to today, we find them being completely mind-blown, confused once again, struggling to understand what Jesus is trying to tell them. Now as we studied the, the farewell discourse, that's what started back in 13 and continues to the end of chapter 16, um, we've seen that it's probably the single most intimate and the most revealing dialogue that Jesus has ever had with the disciples. After three years of walking with him, there's more that gets revealed and fleshed out in this discourse than any other conversation that's recorded in the Gospels. Jesus is pouring himself into them as he faces his own final hours. He is, as John said earlier back in chapter 13, he is loving them until the end, striving to comfort them rather than seeking comfort for himself, even though he's the one who's about to die. He knows that there are hard times ahead for his disciples And so he's been assuring them that this is not going to be the end, but that what he is doing is entirely, entirely for their benefit. So he's warned them about how greatly the world is going to hate them and oppose them because they hate and oppose Christ. But he's given his disciples assurance that he and the Father would send the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of truth, as he referred to him as in the previous passage, to be with them and to lead them into the truth about Jesus. So less than, if you think about it, uh, here they are, it's Thursday night, it's been less than a week since they came triumphantly into Jerusalem with Jesus, who was riding on the back of a donkey with the masses crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But at this point, here we are Thursday night, they must have been thinking that 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 just felt like an eternity ago. What a difference a few days makes, less than a week makes. Jesus is now telling them that he's going to have to die. 
They're, they're starting to understand that. They're starting to come to terms with that. But they still don't understand at all the significance of His impending death. But Jesus is preparing them and assuring them and us that His resurrection will turn their sorrow into true, lasting joy as they look to Him in faith and remember what Jesus has done for them. And that's the point of this passage. Jesus' resurrection turns our sorrow into true, lasting joy as we look to Him in faith and remember what He has done for us. So in fewer than 24 hours, probably somewhere between 12 and 18 hours, from this point in the text, Jesus will be dead and buried. But he wants his disciples to know that this won't be final. This won't be the end. It's almost like he's been laying out a piece of a puzzle here and a piece of a puzzle there and just letting the disciples put them together, trusting that they would, knowing that they would by the work of the Holy Spirit in them who would guide them into all truth. They would put the pieces of the puzzle together. But he gives them a very important piece of the puzzle here in verse 16. Uh, Looking at John chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus continues and says this. He says, A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now, there are, not surprisingly, uh, a few different uh, interpretations of what Jesus is saying here. Um, But there are two uses. What we see here is that there are two uses of, of a single clause. The clause, a little while, Jesus repeats it. He says it twice in this verse. And the different interpretations where where people go different ways uh, flows out of what people believe Jesus's use of this clause referred to uh, in each respective use of it. Uh, John Calvin, for example, believed that Jesus was referring uh, with the first one, the first a little while, to his ascension into heaven uh, and the coming of Christ by the power of the Spirit on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit began to dwell within believers with his second use of the clause. Uh, yet another understanding, the interpretation that Augustine had uh, all the way back in the 4th century AD, uh, is that Jesus was referring, with, with the first use of this term, this clause, uh, a little while, that Jesus was referring to the current age, the age of the church, and with the second one, the second use of the clause, he was referring to his second coming. Uh, And while both of these interpretations seem to have a a degree of of merit and application, I believe that the most natural interpretation of this verse, of what Jesus says here, is to see that what Jesus is doing is addressing what is most immediately before the disciples. What is going to most immediately cause them grief? And that is His death. I believe the first use of the clause, a little while, refers to his death. They would be confronted with this. The disciples would have to face the reality of this within only a couple hours, a few hours. Uh, That's what the first, a little while, refers to. That, by the way, is the view that was held by Chrysostom. Uh, We know that the disciples had a certain expectation of Jesus, of what He would do. They, they knew that He was the Messiah. They believed that He was the Messiah. And they had certain expectations for what the Messiah was going to do. They believed that the Messiah was going to come to establish an earthly kingdom over which He would reign forever. 
Well, if Jesus has been telling them that He's going to die, how could He reign forever over this earthly kingdom? Uh, and make no mistake about it, they, they did believe that that's what Jesus was going to do. They did believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Uh, after all, um, Peter once proclaimed Him as the Christ, the Son of God. Peter once pled with Jesus, saying, Behold, we have left everything and followed You. They believed in Jesus. They believed in Him savingly by God's grace. Their understanding of the Messiah and what the Messiah would come to do, however, was that He would usher in a new age and a new kingdom, which indeed He would. It just wouldn't be the kind of kingdom they had in mind. It wouldn't be an earthly kingdom. Jesus would go on to tell Pilate here in John chapter 20, He'll say, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Uh, Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a spiritual kingdom. The Bible tells us that there are only two ages, two periods of history that every moment falls into. Either this present age or the age to come. Those are the only ages that the Bible speaks of. That's the way that Scripture breaks history into two categories. In the minds of the disciples, the age to come had arrived with the advent of the Messiah. And Jesus was there to usher it in. He was the Messiah. But Jesus dying does not fit with that puzzle piece. It was like a puzzle piece that just was completely out of place. Different color, different shape, didn't fit anywhere on their board. When Jesus says, a little while and you will no longer see me, He is referring, however, to His death, which is looming only hours away. Regardless of what they are expecting, what the disciples are expecting, Jesus has thrown this into the mix. It's very important. It was probably only two hours away or less that Jesus would be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that would be where the disciples would lose sight of their Lord. Not only would they physically lose sight of Jesus, but they would lose sight of Jesus spiritually as well. Their faith would be overcome by fear. And the disciples would scatter. They would run for their lives. They would hide to save themselves. Their understanding of what was about to happen to Jesus was undoubtedly reflected in the sorrowful words spoken by the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 26. The disciples said to Jesus, uh, of Jesus, not knowing that they were speaking to Jesus, they said, we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Those are words of deep deep disappointment. We were hoping that it was going to be Him who redeemed Israel. What was the response of the disciples to news of the resurrection? It was unbelief. They didn't, it wasn't faith. Mark chapter 16, verse 11 says, when they heard that He was alive and had been seen, they refused to believe it. Disbelief was their response to news of the resurrection. 
They were not only not seeing Jesus physically, but they lost sight of Him spiritually as well. That's something that trials can do. That's something that we have to guard our hearts against in the midst of trials, just like the disciples would need to. But Jesus assures them that His death was not to be the end when He follows that up by saying, again a little while, and you will see Me. This seems to me to be a clear reference to His resurrection. Jesus says down in verse 20, if you look at verse 20, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. So given the the overall context, I believe that this interpretation makes the most sense out of all the varying uh, interpretations of verse 16. Back in chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus said to the Jews who were gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles, He said, for a little while, there's that phrase, that clause, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to Him who sent me. So it's found there. Uh, Back in chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus said to the disciples, little children, I am with you a little while longer you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What was he talking about? He was talking about dying and going to the Father. So this seems to make the most sense. Jesus has used this clause a little while on multiple occasions to refer to his impending death and what could relieve their grief over his death. What could relieve their grief over not seeing him anymore as a result of him dying? Only, only His resurrection. So this phrase, a little while, these aren't the only places we see it. This phrase, a little while, is found throughout Scripture. And it's usually used in reference to trials and afflictions, periods of of grief and sorrow that we must endure, but which test our faith. It's a phrase that reminds us that this life is just here today and gone tomorrow and that our suffering uh, doesn't, doesn't go on forever. That there is an end to it. Peter writes in the opening of his first epistle, he says, in this, referring to the gift of salvation that we've received, he says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, the same phrase, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And then in the closing chapter of that same epistle, he writes, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But for a little while, there would be a trial. There would be some suffering. There would be anguish. There would be grief. There would be sorrow. But only for a little while. They just needed to hold on until it was over. See, the problem is that when we're in the midst of grief or sorrow or a trial, uh, when our faith is being tested, not to mention our patience, it usually doesn't seem like it's just a little while, does it? Think of it this way. If, if you go on vacation to Disneyland and you spend 20 minutes in there and go home, uh, that's a little while. That, it kind of came and went before anything really happened. But you spend 20 minutes in the dentist's chair 
And every fiber of your being is screaming, oh, this is taking all day. Get me out of here. It's a little while, but it doesn't feel like it in the moment. A little while can feel like an eternity while we are enduring grief, while we are enduring sorrow of some type. And I have no doubt that that's what it felt like for the disciples that Thursday night when they lost sight of Christ in the midst of their trial. Until Sunday when He rose from the grave and started appearing to His followers. Jesus here was promising His disciples that their grief and their sorrows and their suffering wouldn't last indefinitely. In fact, it wouldn't last long at all. They would see Him again in a little while. And while this applies to the disciples in a way that it doesn't apply to you and me, it does still apply to you and me. J.C. Ryle notes this. He says, quote, There is something, even in the hearts of the most eminent saints, that can never be fully satisfied as long as they are on earth and Christ is in heaven. End quote. Can you relate to that? Is there something in you that can't be completely satisfied while Christ is in heaven and you're on earth. Whatever grief, whatever sorrow or affliction you bear, whatever trial you endure, it certainly would be easier. If only Christ were here with us in the flesh. If we could be in His direct presence, who could doubt, who could deny that He would know exactly what it would take to comfort us? We dwell in a world, and indeed we dwell in bodies that are thoroughly corrupted by the effects of sin. And we long to be free. We see through a mirror, but only dimly. We long to see clearly. We see rebellion against God all around us and we long for the day when all things are brought completely into subjection to Him. We long for the day that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. We long for that day. But friends, we only long for these things for a little while. James tells us that our whole life is only a little while. He says, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while, there's that phrase again, and then vanishes away. Soon, friends, soon we will all see Him face to face. And on that glorious day, every sorrow, every grief, every affliction, every burden will be gone forever. Will be removed from us never to return. The resurrection ensures that. The resurrection proves that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by the Father. Do you believe in Christ alone for your salvation? Then the promise is yours. The resurrection is for you. The promise of spending forever in His presence is yours to cling to. Now compare forever with this life. They they don't line up. They're not even close. You've got a little sliver right here. And then you've just got a, a line that goes on forever. It's just a little while. This life is just a little while. 
Now, why did Jesus say this? He said this in order that his disciples would have hope to cling to in the midst of their trial, in the midst of their sorrows, in order to remind them to just hang on a little while longer and not to be overwhelmed by grief and sorrow. Just like you and I must hold on and cling to Christ when we feel overwhelmed with our own griefs and sorrows in the moment. We must, in those times, persevere. We must hold on just a little while longer. And so must the disciples. But if Jesus' double use of this phrase a little while confuses theologians and pastors and scholars, it's certainly no surprise that it it surprised and confused the disciples first. Uh, Verse 16 then sets the stage for an interesting dialogue that takes place between the disciples. Look at verses 17 to 20 with me. John tells us, Some of his disciples then said to one another, What? Is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, What is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they were that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And that all parallels what he said in verse 16. This is actually the first time that the disciples have jumped in to say anything in response to what Jesus has been saying, although they aren't speaking to Jesus, they're speaking to one another. They're kind of mumbling among themselves, uh, apparently hoping that Jesus doesn't hear them grumbling about how nobody understands what he was trying to tell them. Uh, maybe they realized that Jesus was saying something you know, that was super important and they wanted clarification. Uh, maybe uh, they had understood most of what Jesus has been telling them throughout the farewell discourse, uh, but now they're confused and, and want to understand so they can put it all together. You know, we don't know. We don't know why they, they interject here, but whatever the case may be, what we're supposed to see is that they are really, really confused at this point. They started to understand what Jesus was saying. They they were starting to understand that Jesus had to die. That He was going to the Father. But if they had only just started to wrap their minds around that fact, the promise of seeing Him again apparently threw them for just a a serious loop. Uh, They don't have a category for this. They they don't have a way, a lens through which they can see and understand this uh, for what Jesus just told them. If He dies and they're not going to see Him, how would they see Him again in a little while? That's, that's what they're wrestling with. That doesn't make any sense to them. But do you see their mistake? Did you catch what their mistake is? Do you see who it is that they go to with their lack of understanding, with their confusion? Who do they turn to? Who do they go to? They go to each other. They sort of mutter to one another among themselves. But they didn't go to Jesus. But Jesus knows without being told that they were confused. He knew 
that they had issues with what he had just said, that they were confused about what he had just said, that they had questions for him. And so Jesus takes the initiative and answers their questions before they even have a chance to ask, reminding us that Jesus is constantly aware of our needs and of our feelings and that all things, including our, our minds and our hearts, are always open to Him who sees and who knows all things. But He turns to them, telling them that in a little while they would weep and lament. He's explaining it to them this way. They are going to weep and lament. Meanwhile, the world would be rejoicing. This, by the way, seems to make, make it abundantly clear to me that the first little while has to refer to his death. Uh, when the Pharisees and the world would be rejoicing over his death, thinking, uh, we, we've finally gotten rid of this guy who's our problem. Uh, little did they know. But it's not difficult for us to understand why the death of Jesus would cause the disciples to feel grief, is it? No, in fact, I mean, I think we'd probably agree that it would be more surprising if they didn't have a sense of grief and sorrow about his death, even if they did understand that he would be raised again on the third day. If we stand in their shoes for a moment, we know that they were fully aware of how barbaric a crucifixion was, how barbaric and grotesque it was that somebody would be nailed to a cross and left to die. Add to that the injustice of the whole thing. They know that Jesus is the spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. They know He has never sinned. He's never once transgressed God's law. Never once has He gone outside of God's will. And yet, they would be faced with the utter injustice of having the one sinless person in all of human history treated like the lowest form of criminal. Jesus would be wrongly, falsely accused of blasphemy. He would be given over to Pilate who would instruct that Jesus be scourged with whips, beaten mercilessly by hard-hearted, calloused, Roman soldiers, when Pilate gave the people a choice to either set Jesus free or to set Barabbas, a murderer, free, the people started chanting and crying out of Jesus, crucify Him. The most barbaric and gruesome act of all would be when Jesus would be stripped of all of His clothes and nailed to a cross, all while His closest friends his companions for the last three years would either be standing at a distance as John did or would be completely absent, hiding, trying to save their own lives, denying and forsaking Jesus in this moment entirely. Of course, this caused the disciples to feel grief and sorrow, to know that He was nailed to a cross. Of course it caused them grief and sorrow. And while they were overcome with grieving, the world around them rejoiced. How bitter, think about how bitter that must have been for the disciples to see the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people who were chanting for Him to be crucified. How bitter it must have been to see them rejoicing over Jesus' death. Now we can relate to that, but on a lesser level. We see all around us 
how much the world hates Jesus. We hear people blaspheme Him by using His name as a euphemism for the vilest things, for curse words. There are few things that grieve my heart as deeply as that. We mourn and we grieve when we see loved ones and neighbors suppressing the truth about Christ in unrighteousness. But the disciples would also experience the same sense of grief that we do when they came to understand the significance of the crucifixion. Even after He had raised from the dead, they would still feel grief that He had to die, just like we do. But why did Jesus have to die? The answer is, because the wage of sin is death. Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost and to give His life as a ransom for many. He took the wrath of God in the place of every single one of His people. He stood in their place. If the wrath of God against even one person is worse, is more terrifying and more awful than we can imagine, for just one person, how much more. It's infinitely more awful that Jesus would have to stand in the place and bear God's wrath against the sins of the countless sea of people who cannot be numbered, who worship around God's throne that we're told about in the book of Revelation. Jesus had to stand in every single one of their places, and they can't be numbered. How much wrath is that? We can't even fathom it. We, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around how awful that would be. But that's what Jesus did. When somebody asks, who crucified Jesus? The answer isn't the Romans. The answer isn't the Jews. The answer isn't even the world that rebels against Him. The answer is that you and I did. The answer is that you might not have been there to yell out, crucify Him, but every time His people sin, we join in with the screaming mob on that day. Does that grieve you? That your sin, which was laid upon Him, joined the mob that day? It should. It should grieve you. The fact that the world knew Him not and thus rejoiced when they should have been grieving, would also have caused the disciples to feel grief and sorrow. It revealed that the world called the greatest of all possible evils, crucifying the one innocent person who's ever lived, that they called that one vile, evil act good. Can you imagine how you would have felt? Think back to 9-11. If you would have seen somebody celebrating on that day, what do you think would have happened to that person? How do you think you would have felt toward that person? And yet, 9-11 was not as unjust as Christ being nailed to a cross. Can you imagine how much sorrow, how much anger, how much grief you would feel to see somebody laughing at and mocking the death of somebody that you love? Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, So it remains today. The people are glad for Jesus not to be in the world, preferring His crucifixion to His righteous reign. End quote. Does that not cause you to feel grief and sorrow? 
And of course, the disciples were grieved because their expectations were just completely shattered. We were hoping, we were hoping that it was He who would redeem Israel. As if to say, there's nobody else who can do it. What hope could we possibly have now? It's a good reminder, by the way, that we should be very careful about having expectations for things that God has not actually promised. But Jesus had a different view of His death than the disciples did. He didn't view His death as final. He didn't see His being nailed to a cross as defeat. He didn't see it as loss. He saw it as gain. He he didn't even feel grief or sorrow that it had to happen. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us something very interesting and very contrary to what we would expect. It tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. For the what? For the joy set before Him? Think about that. There's no other criminal who was ever crucified who did it with joy. Think about what that says for a moment. If you were writing that, would you have chosen to use the word joy? I mean, it makes a whole lot more sense, at least from, from our humanistic perspective, to say, for the pain set before Him, He endured the cross. Or for the anguish set before Him, He endured the cross. A different word would, would fit a lot better. It would seem a lot more appropriate than joy. But joy is what Jesus felt as He endured the cross. Because Jesus didn't see His death as negative at all. Rather, He saw it as His means to victory. Victory over sin. Victory over death. The redemption of His people. Entirely accomplished. It is finished. The debt is completely paid in full. His work on earth for the salvation of His people finished once and for all. He doesn't regret that it happened. It was His joy to not only remove the sin and shame that His people had as a result of sin, but it was also His joy to redeem His people from the curse of sin and from the power of death, the last enemy. There are indeed many, many things for us to feel sorrow for and to grieve in this world. But here Jesus' promise to the disciples and to us is this, your grief will be turned into joy. Notice the words that Jesus uses here in John. He doesn't say your grief will be replaced by joy. He doesn't say your grief will be overcome by joy. He says your grief will be turned into joy. What he's saying here is that once the disciples see him again and understand why he had to die, once they understand the significance of his death, why it was necessary, they will have joy over the very same thing that caused them so much grief and sorrow. Namely, His death. They would rejoice over it. They would have joy that He redeemed them. Once they understand that it's through the shedding of His blood 
that they have been made clean, that they have been reconciled once and for all to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ the Messiah alone, they will have joy over what He did. This is why we call the Friday on which He died Good Friday. Did good things happen on that day? No, the greatest evil in human history happened on that day, but something good also happened on that day. It's good and it's a blessed thing that Jesus gave His life as a ransom for many on that day. Indeed, for all who would believe in Him. This is why we sing happy, joyful songs about the crucifixion. Our song at the cross, it's a joyful song, right? It's a happy, upbeat song. But if there were no resurrection to prove that the atoning sacrifice of Christ was accepted by the Father, we couldn't be happy about it. We couldn't have joy over it. If the disciples didn't see Him again, their grief would not have been turned to joy. Instead of singing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The best that we could do without a resurrection is, what might wash away my sins? Probably the blood of Jesus. Possibly. But because of the resurrection, we have a different view of what took place on Good Friday. Because of the resurrection, therefore we can sing happily and joyfully about the suffering that Jesus joyfully endured on our behalf because we can sing with confidence and assurance that His perfect sacrifice was accepted. That His work was perfect and completed. The resurrection of Christ transforms the grief and the sorrow associated with Christ's death into joy for the salvation that He has provided for us. For the disciples, the resurrection also meant that they could once again be in the presence of Jesus, the physical presence of Jesus, if only for a little bit longer before Christ would ascend into heaven where He's now seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning forever at the right hand of God the Father uh, over the kingdom that He purchased with His own blood. While we don't benefit in this exact same way that the disciples did from the resurrection, uh, you know, it, we, we, know that he, we know how the story ends. They didn't in the moment. Uh, while we don't benefit in the same way that they did from the resurrection, we do find the promise of our own resurrection from the grave in the future. Uh, consider what Job said in the midst of his suffering. And who knew suffering worse than Job? Only Jesus, I would imagine. Job wrote this in Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. He says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall myself behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. One of the amazing things about that passage is it's uh, Job was probably the first book of the Bible that was ever written. The first book that was written. It, it not, not chronologically, you know, it took place you know, after Adam and Eve and everything in Genesis, but all those things were recorded probably after Job was written. Uh, and here in the first book that was written in the Bible, we find a clear 
very paradoxical reference to the resurrection. It seems impossible what he says until we understand what the resurrection is and what it means and that it is certain. It it seems paradoxical until we understand that life is just very short, but then there is something after that. It doesn't end at death. We too will have our faith turned into sight and we will too see the Lord Jesus face to face whether it's when He returns or when He resurrects us from the grave. And the truth is that neither you nor I nor anyone else can even begin to imagine how wonderful it will be to see Him face to face. It will shake us to the core. It will affect us down to our very DNA. John writes this in his first epistle. He says, we know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. We will be like Him because we've seen Him with our own eyes. We can't even imagine what it would be like to actually have our sanctification completed. But He's going to complete it someday when we see Him. Jesus wanted His disciples to know this and to find comfort in the midst of their grief and sorrow in light of this promise. And He wants the same for you and me, friends. And thus He goes on to illustrate this transformation from despair to joy to delight with a parable uh, in verses 21 and 22. He continues saying, Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. I can think of very few things that people in general find more joyful than welcoming a child into the world. But before that happens, before that joyous moment when the baby is born and the mother gets to hold it, before that happens, there's a bit of suffering that takes place that a woman must endure. Sometimes it's a lot of suffering. But while the suffering may be immense, while the suffering might be great, the joy that follows, the joy of hearing her child cry and holding her child for the first time is a unique experience in which sorrow and pain produce incredible, overwhelming joy. It's interesting to note, by the way, that the Old Testament uh, commonly uses this illustration of a, of a woman giving birth. Uh, the same illustration of the suffering that she has to endure, the struggling and the sorrow that God's people would have to experience and endure before experiencing the joyful relief that the Messiah would bring. Listen to what Isaiah writes. In Isaiah chapter 26, verses 16 to 21, he writes this, O Lord, they have sought You in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, She writhes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. 
We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits." Come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from His place. I hope you caught that a little while there in verse 20. But this illustration helps us to grasp. It gives us a picture so that we can visualize the joy that we can have when we consider what Christ has done for us, just as they could have joy as they looked forward to the moment when the Messiah came and would give His life for them and redeem them from the curse of sin. John Calvin once said, Joy is a quiet gladness of heart as one contemplates the goodness of God's saving grace in Christ Jesus. End quote. There are so many things, however, that distract us from doing that. From taking time to contemplate the goodness of God's saving grace. From, from meditating on what exactly Christ has done for us. That's one of the reasons that I, that I encourage people to not only have a devotional like the Table Talk magazines or, or whatever, but to also spend time daily in the Word. The Puritans were a great example of how to do that. They put a lot of things into practice uh, in order to ensure that they would have their minds focused on Christ throughout each and every day. They would wake up early and they would read the Scriptures and throughout the day as they went about their business, they'd mull over what they had read and then when they came together for dinner in the evening, they would talk about the same thing, the same passage that they had read in the morning. And this is exactly why some of the richest and some of the best books on Christian living that we have today were actually written by the Puritans. And this is why they also saw spiritual application and parallels in so many different things in life, because they had figured out how to meditate on Christ throughout the day. If you are struggling to find joy, Let me just say this. Put the distractions away. Take your eyes off the television. Close your laptop for a little while. Put your phone back in your pocket. Take your eyes and your mind off of the things of this world that distract you and set your eyes firmly on Christ. See what He has done for you. And how do you see these things? Where do you see these things? In His Word. See the joy that He had in redeeming you. Think of the day in which you'll stand before Him and how that will make you like Him. The resurrection changes absolutely everything. But not for everybody. The resurrection changes things for Christians. But it doesn't change things for everybody. If you have never savingly believed in Jesus, you have to be warned that whatever joy, whatever happiness, whatever positive things you might experience in this life, they are the closest that you will ever 
ever come to experiencing the joys of heaven. The day of your judgment is just getting closer and closer with every passing day. And if you continue to refuse to believe in Christ, you must know that whatever happiness you find in this world, it will be turned to anguish and sorrow on the day of your judgment. Consider how you have tried to Ignore the fact that this day is coming. Consider how you have refused to prepare for the day in which you will stand in judgment before the Lord. Consider that you will lose all the things in this world that you have spent your life living for and loving and trying to find just a fleeting sense of happiness in. Does this warning not awaken you? Does it not humble you? Does it not remind you of your greatest need, which is for mercy, for grace? And these things are only found in one place, in one person. It's found by believing in Christ, trusting that His death was in your place, and that His resurrection leaves you with no excuse for any unbelief. So be reconciled to God while you still have breath, while you still have today, because tomorrow is never promised. And even if it does come, it won't be easier tomorrow. If you put it off, it will only harden your heart further, making it more difficult tomorrow. So come and know the joy that Christians have known throughout this age for whom the sorrows and the grief that we endure in this life only last a little while, but will be turned to joy. What great joy is found in the here and now, in knowing, in believing that Jesus died for us, that Jesus was raised from the grave for us, and that Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father where He lives and reigns forever over His kingdom. Friends, life is short Eternity is forever. For those who are in Christ, not only do we have every reason to be joyful people because of the resurrection, but because we know, we know that we will spend forever separated from sin, separated from the effects of sin, in Christ's very presence where the joys of heaven will forever be ours. Jesus' resurrection changes everything for us. Jesus' resurrection turns our sorrows into true lasting joys as we look to Him in faith and remember and believe what He has done for us. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, It is with grief that we think of Christ dying. It's with grief that we remember that we were the ones who made His death necessary. That He only died in order that our sins could be forgiven. And yet they are so many. It's impossible for us to fathom the grief and the the pain that He endured on our behalf. But to know that He did it with joy 
and to know that He rose again on the third day fills our hearts with joy because we know that our redemption was finished by His work. We thank You, O Lord, for sending Christ to live the perfect life and to die the death that every single one of us deserved to die. Bearing Your wrath in our place. Thank You for the great love with which You have loved us and with which You have drawn us to Christ. We pray, O Lord, that we would be grown in His likeness through whatever trials and sorrows we may endure in this life. And we pray, O Lord, that You would conform us to His image. That He would be exalted in our lives, glorified in our lives as we become more and more like Him. Father, You have entrusted us with the one message that gives hope to the lost. We pray that You would give us conviction and boldness to share that message, to preach and proclaim that message in order that many would be saved by believing in Christ. Not for our glory, but for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.